0: So, we just did something we don't do all the time. We just picked up a little bit of ammunition at a big box store. We don't usually shop for our ammunition at a big box store. But if we uh, shoot up some at the range, then we'll, you know, we like to replace what we shoot up. And we happen to be around a big box store. I won't use the name, but it rhymes with ball cart. And yeah, so we picked up a couple of hundred rounds of federal 9mm uh, for a certain spice to go and shoot with.
1: Paper targets beware. Paper
0: targets beware. And uh, I picked up uh, a box of 308. For sighting in my new Air 10 clone. And as we were doing this, I was looking at, we have a lot of ammunition in our house. We do. We have a lot of ammunition. I admit it. We have more than a reasonable amount, I would say. Yes. But, one of the reasons we have that amount is because as we shoot it, we buy it. So that if there's a great ammunition shortage in the future, we can still continue to train. A lot of times people will buy a gun and they'll get a box of ammunition and they'll shoot a box of ammunition a year, 50 rounds and they're good. And when I think about this, and I'm not not—I'm including like even law enforcement people, people who... Depend their lives depend every day on their ability to handle a firearm will shoot a very minimal amount And I keep coming back to something. I learned as both a coach and a player in organized sports and that is You play like you train And that's the topic of our podcast today. Welcome to the show the big show The most critically important podcast that is recorded in our car I am Salty. I'm Spice. And we're going to hear to talk today about you play like you train. And not just in sports or, you know, in golf, which isn't actually a sport. But (laughs) (laughs) as Mark Twain says, it's a good walk, spoiled. But anyway, so let loose. Let loose the dogs of war.
1: What? Did you say let loose the neurophysiology of why you're going to play like you train? Why, well, that's exactly what I said, mentally. <laughs> because when you brought up this topic, I was thinking neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity.
0: The first thing that came to my mind, too, was <laughs> neuroplasticity. That's right. We have a physiologist in the car. And you know where she's going with it?
1: Physiology land. It's physiology,
0: kind of and interestingly, this is some of what she, what she, uh, this is in her wheelhouse because it really you do really physiologically play like you trained.
1: Can't help it because adults don't get new brain cells easily, and uh, essentially don't do it at all except in the memory centers. You can build new neurons to store new memories. But most of the neurons you've got, you're going to keep and use your whole life. What we do do is we change the connections between them. So there's a lot of rewiring of the brain going on. Human beings are not like houses. When you build a house, you put certain uh, studs in the wall <clears throat> and certain support elements there and you put screws in. And those same support elements and screws and things, all those connections are going to be there for as long as the house is up, mostly. But living beings are not that way. We're always remodeling ourselves, taking little pieces out, rebuilding them with basically similar pieces. But we rebuild in response to recent stresses. So when you lift weights, you tear up the muscles a little bit. When you're lifting the weights, you rebuild the muscles a little stronger because there's ways to sense that they weren't quite strong enough and got a little torn up. When you do a task that requires thinking, the, uh, core tenet of neurobiology is basically neurons that fire together wire together. That means if you use a whole set of neurons basically at the same time, all those neurons will strengthen their connections with each other so that it'll be easier to fire them as a group the next time. And the fact that it becomes easier to activate a whole set of neurons as a group represents something called procedural memory. Cool. Yeah. And we all naturally form procedural memory. That's why you don't have to think about signing your name, but you do have to think about writing Seizuquan. If you don't write that word often, you have to think about how to uh, write it a little bit when you're doing it. But you put basically no thought into spelling your own name. You've got a procedural memory. When you decide to sign your own name, all you got to do is basically activate that circuit in your brain you've already got developed, because all those neurons have wired together. Every time you do a, a complex motor task, you wire those neurons together a little bit better. And the using of the wired together neurons, you decide to activate them, but actually using the whole set is a basically automatic response that no longer takes your attention. So when you are training, what you're doing is getting certain sets of neurons all nice and wired up tight. When you don't have a lot of attention to spare on that task, you'll just kick that set of neurons into action, and you'll perform the action the way you've always been performing it without much tension. And in times of stress, you don't have the attention to spare. So you're not going to be able to stop and think through all your different motions You're going to have to have a circuit there that you can just kick into place. It knows how to rack the round into the chamber. It remembers to take the safety off. It remembers how to get the right cheek weld. So all the physical motions of it are automated and don't require the attention you can't spare in the first place and would probably not do very well under stress if you tried.
0: this kind of reminds me of, of something from baseball and from golf and from football and, and you know, if it's, it's amazing how many of the, the big shots you make, if you don't have time to think about it, you know, the, the, the follow a jumper to win the game. So many of those go in because it's just pure muscle memory, but there's a, there's a, uh, phenomena generally called the yips. People get the yips because they sit around and they think about it and they start thinking about every part of the process and not just doing it. And it is very common in, in like baseball where an all pro or an all uh, an all-star second baseman famously of from the from the Dodgers all of a sudden couldn't throw the ball to first base without throwing it away. This is a thing he had done since, you know, he was four years old. But it got in his head. And he didn't just pick the ball, throw the ball. He, it, you know, it, it became a thing. And he got to where he just would throw the ball, you know, half a mile over the first baseman's head instead of just picking it up and throwing it.
1: The truth is your conscious self is not as good at managing complex muscle motions as the lower parts of your brain that are designed to do that job. And if you have the circuit in place, you've already trained the neurons in the lower part of your brain, all you got to do is give them the go signal, and they'll take care of it. And they're fast, and they're effective, and they produce extremely good results with very little attention. It's when you try and put your full attention on it that you're not very good at it. Either when you've got the yips, after you already know how to do the thing, or... As you're first learning a task, of course, you don't have the circuit yet, you're forced to rely on your more conscious self, and you're just not as good at the activity then. So you're going to play like you train, because you're going to wire your brain to play the same way you're training. If you're not training much, then you're going to have to rely on that conscious self to micromanage everything. It's going to get really overloaded with too many tasks, you're not going to be able to pay attention to everything you need to pay attention to. Maybe that means you try and fire at that intruder who's charging at you without taking your safety off.
0: You know, even, even if, you know, if you put into a stressful situation <clears throat> I'm sorry, you put into a stressful situation and here's an example. In uh, the Civil War This happened time and again, where they'd find a soldier had loaded his musket eight or nine times the ball. I mean, the balls were halfway up the barrel.
1: Stacked them, load after load, without firing.
0: Right, and he didn't put a a percussion cap on it. So he'd pull it back, fire, reload, without even realizing he had not actually, the gun hadn't actually gone bang. This happened a
1: lot. Because his conscious self was overloaded with the stress of the situation and he's, his procedural memory was missing a step and his conscious self wasn't noticing it. So he was having a fail.
0: Yeah. So that's like I said, it wasn't just a one thing. It happened again and again. It was a very common thing. And so you, I have a real problem with people who, uh, think that they're going to become Sylvester Stallone, they're the next Rambo, when they've never been in a life-threatening situation or they've never been in a in a gunfight. Uh, I've never been in a gunfight. You know what? I will not be Rambo if I'm in a gunfight. Chances are very good, and I'm just being honest here, chances are very good I'll stand there peeing down my leg. I don't know. I've had a gun pointed at me twice, and I didn't find either one comfortable. One was entirely by accident by a law enforcement officer who had lost he had lost uh, he had lost his awareness of where his gun was. Gun. He was I was a journalist, and he was trying to push past me in a in a street riot. Well, it wasn't a street riot, but it was a riot type situation where there's a huge fight breaking out. And he took his gun and he jammed it right in my rib cage, pushing me out of the way. And I looked down and his finger's on the trigger. I mean, if he pulled the trigger, it would have gone off in me. That will wake you up. And he did not mean to do it. And uh, I had a talk with him afterwards. And he was abashed. He did not realize it. He was just trying to get to where the trouble was.
1: I was in a life threatening situation, really, one time that I recall. And it was a car accident, and there were a lot of sparks flying. And the only conscious thought I really had at the time was to get away from the contact with metal so I wouldn't get shocked. Why did I, I was, and I pulled up everything so I wasn't touching metal why I was able to have that thought and complete that action is because I would had been working with some fairly serious electrical equipment for a number of years by that point. And that's something that that thought and that kind of action had occurred to me time and time again, if something might be hot, you don't touch it, and you don't touch anything conductive leading to it until you can figure out what the problem is and deal with it. And that, idea and approach was built into my mindset from repetition after repetition after repetition. And that's all I managed to do. Except screaming like a girl. That one was automatic.
0: Well, you weren't the only person in the car that was screaming like a girl. So yeah, it's it's one of those situations where, you know, unless you train... In a regular fashion, for uh, let's just take a combat situation. Unless you regularly train in a combat situation with combat arms, dealing with uh, combat scenarios where you and a team are going through the the, uh, a training course on a regular basis, you're probably not going to do very well in combat. I recognize this. This is one of the things I recognize. And I think a lot of people who are preppers think they can go to the range and shoot off uh, 50 rounds at a target and they're ready to be on the SWAT team.
1: I can tell you for sure it's a major difference even standing there shooting at a target and throwing out a little target ball and shooting it and try and shoot it again as it rolls and shoot it again as it rolls and shoot it again as it rolls. Even that is a significantly different exercise and a good training exercise, by the way.
0: So why do we bother? Well, you know, it, it reminds me of, of a, the, old, the old story. There's a couple people are out walking through the woods. And a person's, you know, one of them's wearing jogging shoes, the other one's wearing hiking boots. And the first person person asks, why are you wearing jogging shoes? So I can run. He's like, you can't run away from a bear. The guy kind of grins. He's, I don't have to run away from a bear. All i got to do is beat you. You know? That's the kind of situation. Why would you train? Well, because if you're in an adversarial situation, you don't have to be the next Rambo. You just have to be a little better than the person who you're opposing.
1: There's something else to keep in mind, too. Yes. Certainly, you cannot train for all aspects of a life-threatening situation because the stress response is just such a huge deal. And you're not going to adequately train that when you're not in a life-threatening situation. But a lot of the complex motions involved in a high-stress situation can either be trained, or if they cannot be effectively trained, you can at least do mental walkthroughs. And it turns out, if you visualize and imagine every step of a process including the triggers that start it and what exactly you do step by step, even if you can't physically perform the actions that you're imagining, it does help reinforce the right circuits. The same circuits, I think, uh, the studies I I was uh, looking at were about uh, free throw shooters. And they took some naive free throw shooters, which means people who didn't play basketball and didn't shoot free throws, and they gave everybody a little bit of practice to let them know basically what was up. And then some of them continued to practice physically, and some of them spent the time just sitting in a chair in a room in a concentrated visualization of how to do the procedure. They uh, took brain scans of both groups and found that the same brain circuits were lightened up in both, and they both had improved efficiency. Now, the guys who'd been doing the actual shooting were better because they got feedback on how their motions were working at the time they were doing them, and that's a better way to reinforce the right circuits. But the people who had just sat there and imagined it did significantly better than if they hadn't done that exercise at all. So visualization exercises can actually do some real good... This is not daydreaming about you being Mr. Rambo Hero. Because that sort of visualization is not realistic enough to reinforce the right circuits. This is imagining yourself going through discrete subsets of physical actions that would be required. Like, okay, I drive a lot in Missouri in the winter. There's bad weather sometimes. Obviously, I don't have a lot of opportunity to practice sliding off the road into a ditch. But I did, at my mother's insistence, I might add, spend a lot of time imagining, okay, if this happened now, what would I do about it? Which way would I turn the wheel? What would I be doing with my feet? Where would I be aiming? And that sort of visualization made it so when it actually happens to me every now and then, my reactions have been, so far, quite acceptable. So visualization is very useful.
0: getting back to firearms. In visualization, I certainly totally agree with, but just straight up on firearms, I think a lot of the time people... Dang it. I'm trying to do a project here and it's not working out. People are not cooperating. Well, I'll get that the next time. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, A lot of times people are... Thinking about firearms like, okay, I'm going to take this gun and I'm going to whack this guy. You know, bad guys coming for you, I'm going to whack this guy. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. First, you know, the first thing you train with a firearm when you're training isn't, I'm going to go whack this guy. What is it? Safety. Safety first, safety always. Keep your finger off the trigger if you're not, you know the rules. Keep your fingers off the trigger if you're not going to fire. Do not point it at anything you, the, a firearm, the it, anything you don't want to shoot. You know, always keep the barrel pointed in a safe direction.
1: Be aware of the background of wherever you're aiming the weapon because the first thing you see might not stop that bullet.
0: Right, and you know, and what happens if you miss? In the very high likelihood that you miss. What happens? You know, so you got all this stuff. So the first thing you're doing is you're doing. Training the muscle, your muscle memory, and training your subconscious to not sweep the barrel of the gun over people. To not point the barrel in an unsafe direction. This is the stuff you're training yourself. You want to keep yourself safe, keep everybody else safe.
1: Make part of your visualization and part of your practice slow, deep breaths while you're doing it because that will physically reduce the stress reaction and make you more effective.
0: So you've got that, okay? The next thing you're working on is the operation of the firearm. What steps do you have to do to fire the firearm? Because oh, most of the time, and be honest with you, most of the time if you, have, if you draw a firearm, it will be as a deterrent, not as something you're actually going to shoot the person. So the first thing you need to do when you draw a firearm if you make the decision to draw the firearm, you draw the firearm, you're going to be pointing it in a safe direction up until time to, to actually shoot somebody, and you're going to be handling it safely. But then you need to operate the weapon. How is it? Do you have a round in the chamber? Is it a single-action or double-action revolver? Is it a single-action or double-action semi-automatic? Uh, do you have a round in the chamber and the safety on? Is there no safety? You know, it depends on each firearm. For example, if she's carrying a live round in her Glock 19, all she has to do is literally raise the gun to the right direction and pull the trigger, and it will go bang.
1: I normally don't keep it holstered like that. I keep it holstered without a round in it, but with the magazine in. So when I go to the range, one of the things I often practice is draw the weapon, rack the bullet into the chamber, get on target, then put the finger on the trigger.
0: Now, this is a this is a decision that you'll need to make. And this is outside the scope of what we're talking about because as everybody knows who's been on a prep before there's a huge debate as to whether to carry a live round in your in your chamber or not. This is a huge debate. There's there's pluses and minuses to both sides. This is not really what we're talking about in this podcast at all. You know, this is not the scope of it but we want you the the key part is you need to know and you need to be trained and you need to be ready whichever way you choose
1: now it's part of my muscle memory whenever i pull that weapon from the holster the first thing i do is rack around into the chamber because i know that's what i'm going to need to do
0: with us this is how i do it too with us our basically our decision is that it is safer for us to draw a, a a gun out of the holster without a round in it, than it is for us to draw a gun without anything but a trigger safety, which is a Glock, with a round in it. It is safer to draw it without a round
1: and to so, be carrying it without a round and to be handling carrying it without, without a round, a round is, is safer most of the time. And so
0: that's why we do it. And since we're much more likely to draw the gun in practice, and we're much more likely to get the gun bumped while we're carrying it than we are to be in a situation where we're actually pointing it at a human being, we'll take the more likely.
1: Especially where you need that two seconds, because it really is only two seconds, if that.
0: And very, and frankly, the act of chambering around is, a, is an intimidating act. Yeah. So if the gun, you, this is kind of a side issue, but it's another issue that comes important with guns. You must not carry a gun unless you're willing to use it. If you are not willing to use a firearm, for heaven's sake, don't carry it. Because all you're going to be doing is giving the bad guy a gun. And that's just not what you want to do if you're not going to use it if you, I mean
1: you can carry something else carry a pepper gun for heaven's sake yeah,
0: carry pepper spray pepper gun
1: that carry, is much carry better a taser than, yeah there's carry, a lot of good things to be said about those kind of deterrence to getting attacked
0: you carry a stun gun but if you're not willing to shoot somebody and I'm not saying you should shoot somebody unless they really 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 need it of course but if you're not willing to do it you should not carry a gun. Period.
1: Yeah. I can't imagine shooting somebody who was not an imminent threat to life and health, but I can, I absolutely believe I would if I was in that situation. Or it doesn't even have to be a person, frankly. I'm most yeah, often sure. actually carrying the weapon in a place where I'm more concerned about rabid mammals than I am about people.
0: And frankly, we have mountain lions in the area. Yeah. You know, it's something we consider we we have mountain lions. We don't have bears. Well, we
1: we prob- have bears, but yeah. they're not the kind of bears who are going to jump you. They're they're not black the, bears. Yeah,
0: they're also not the kind of bears your 9 millimeter is going to do much of, much against either.
1: Good. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz I don't want to shoot them, they don't want to eat me. That's a perfect situation.
0: <laughs> and you're not messing with their cubs.
1: Absolutely.
0: So what else do you think on muscle memory and, and training, playing like a train?
1: Um Eating. Eating. Eating, eating. especially with kids, because but uh, some adults are this way, too, frankly. I'm kind of picky. It can be very difficult to get people to eat stuff that they are not used to eating, and most especially kids, because this is genetically, this is part of our genetic makeup. On average, it takes introducing a food to a kid about 20 times for many kinds of foods before you can expect them to start liking it. So if you are, if your kid habitually eats foods from a box and chicken fingers and pizza or even healthier foods that you won't be able to get in an emergency, you can't expect to be plopping down the stuff that's very different from what they usually eat and expect them to eat it. You might say if they get hungry enough, they will. Yeah, but it might take a very long time for a kid to get hungry enough to actually do it. And you don't want that kid suffering in the meantime. You don't want that added stress of I'm really, really hungry, but there's nothing I feel like I can eat because it's all weird and yucky and I don't want it. So make sure everybody is sometimes eating the kinds of food you might expect them to eat. If you make it more of an adventure thing, you know, a lot more people. Uh, My experience is with older kids, basically, but making it seem like more of an adventure than a, this is a horrible situation and so you must, increases the success of getting them to eat the new kind of food.
0: This is another reason why you really want to... Sorry. Sorry. Store what you eat and start using your storage food as part of your regular diet so that you can work this all into your diet and you don't come up with that nasty surprise of, well, so-and-so won't eat it. Well, I guarantee you, and this is just a, this is a hard fact of life, if they get hungry enough, they'll eat anything. But that doesn't mean it's going to be a pleasant situation.
1: And it's going to be a major stressor, and they can be low on energy and cranky and unable to maybe keep up the way you might need them to keep up. In the meantime, so it's kind of. They also might have stomach up significant stomach upset.
0: Yeah, and a lot of the training the training your your physiology is the fact that you know you do a big huge diet switch. It's going to be hard on your system, your internals. If you hit this big diet stretch if, if for example, all you store is like starch stuff, and you're used to eating a lot of meat, and all of a sudden you switch over from meat to starch, I I'm a historian, so I always go back to the Civil War. This was a, this was a thing in the Civil War. They uh, the soldiers got used to hardtack and salt horse and hardtack and they busted through down in Georgia on Sherman's March to the Sea. They busted through and were just picking up all kinds of food. There's food throughout the South. People misunderstand the fact that the, the Southern armies were starving. The problem wasn't that there wasn't food. The problem was they couldn't get it to the troops because there, there had no transportation. So there was food all over the South, and it was available. And that's what Sherman and his guys... Uh, were eating, But they were eating so much rich food that they were used to hardtack and salt horse. And, you know, they got to, to where they really were sick and tired of the good, nutritious food because it was clogging them up. <laughs> and they were having all <laughs> kinds of digestive issues because they went from this harsh diet of one particular type to a completely different kind of diet. And, of course, throw in the odd dysentery and stuff like that. It can get really miserable. But,
1: anyway. That's That's actually more the rule than the exception, the dysentery.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Also, you can train mental flexibility. When you put people in a lot of different situations and ask, ask them to do new and different things fairly often, being asked to do new and different things in and of itself becomes much less of a stressor. Being asked to sleep somewhere other than their own bed. Being asked to do things physically that they're not used to doing. All of these things become much less stressful when they have been asked to do a bunch of different things. So you can actually train mental flexibility and adaptability as well as training to specific situations. And all of that's very valuable. Because please do not underestimate the importance of stress in one's physical well-being as well as mental well-being during times of uh, emergency. It's just giant.
0: Good to know. So have we covered the topic? think so. All right. So what we're
1: going to do is we're going to
0: shut it down and we'll catch you the next time. Thank you for listening and bye-bye.